You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zyro Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, in part two of an ongoing series. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, more phony phoners on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature report. But first, your environmental news brief. WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, March 23rd. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaufel. According to a new report from the Environmental Integrity Project, Indiana has the most polluted rivers out of any state in the country, with over 25,000 miles of river being contaminated and not suitable for human activities. The report was created to mark the 50th year anniversary of the signing of the Clean Water Act which hope to have clean rivers across the United States in 10 years. While many scientists and environmentalists still hope to reach this goal now, there are many problems hindering it in Indiana. The state suffers from an overabundance of bacteria and nutrients in the water coming from agricultural sources. This occurs because agricultural runoff is barely regulated by the Clean Water Act. Steps are being made to raise awareness concerning this issue across the state. However, the one area that Indiana does exceed in includes its water testing facilities, which test more water than any other state, hoping to ensure clean drinking water for Hoosiers. Last week's fire at a Walmart fulfillment center in Plainfield, Indiana, is likely to have led to contaminated pollutants affecting the air quality. The Environmental Protection Agency has confirmed that there was a high level of fine particulate matter in the form of microscopic dust or soot. This has the potential to be stuck inside the lungs if inhaled. Residents near the fire have been warned to wear N95 masks and gloves when cleaning up any of the fire debris nearby. These contaminants can cause breathing problems and possibly lead to cancer. DPA has stated that there has not been any sign of the fire affecting water quality. Federal investigators have yet to determine what exactly caused the fire or what allowed it to spread so fast throughout the distribution center. On a positive note, four Bengal tigers housed in cramped cages for almost two decades as part of a circus act have been rescued by Four Paws International, an animal welfare organization from the country of Argentina, in the country of Argentina. The tigers, which had never touched grass or seen the sky, were finally able to live at the Lion's Rock Big Cat Sanctuary in South Africa. While they are still in a fenced-off enclosure for now, it represents the closest thing to a natural habitat for these majestic creatures. 
This group of tigers, once approved for release by a veterinarian after a few more months of study, will be free to move into a mega enclosure and thus be able to live as close as possible to how their natural habitat counterparts do. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. At the Richland Bean Blossom School Board meeting on March 21st, Assistant Superintendent Matt Irwin asked the board to approve a grant called the Build, Learn, Grow Child Care Stabilization Grant. He said the FSSA, or the Family and Social Services Administration, awarded the Richland Bean Blossom School District a $131,000 grant that they intend to use to install an outdoor playground at the preschool. Yeah, so this is another grant that uh, Matt Wooden uh, was able to secure. Um, it's it's uh, from the fall of 2021, the Family and Social Services uh, Administration, the FSSA, um, which is the Office of Early Childhood and Out-of-School Learning, awarded RBB a little uh, over $131,000 as a part of this grant. Um, we plan to use this grant under the area of facility fees, maintenance, and improvements category um, with specifically looking at the outdoor play space for the new preschool addition. Uh, so we're really excited about uh, just building up that area for that play space that will hopefully include an outdoor classroom, pour in place, um, playground equipment, um, a, back, a bike walkway pathway for our students to get out and move. Um, it's going to be a really nice area for just another added space that our students and staff will be able to um, use. I'm also hoping that here in another a month or two, we possibly could be coming back with a second round of this. Um, there's a second round of the funding that uh, Mr. Wooden is looking into. So hopefully we'll be able to get that. Playgrounds are not uh, very cheap. And so we're, we're really excited about th these funds to be able to really improve a nice space for our kids and our staff. So with that, I ask for your approval of that grant. President of the board, Dana Robert Kerr, commented that the staff's ability to find and apply for grants is important to help fund special expenses. I think our team does a really good job of seeking out yes. grants and keeping their eyes and ears open. And so I appreciate that because uh, they, they do help us with special, especially with the special things. Yes. <laughs> um, so we appreciate them. They also approved the intermediate school fourth grade class trip to Connor Prairie. The board approved the motion unanimously. The next school board meeting will be held on April 18th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay, senior legal counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights about the meaning behind rights of nature and what inspired Lindsay to advocate for them. This is part two of this ongoing series on the WFHB Local News. WFHB Firehouse Broadcasting is Indiana's first community radio station. 
located in Bloomington, Indiana. WFHB recognizes the indigenous communities native to this region as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. WFHB acknowledges and honors the Miamiaki, Lenape, Bodewadmik, and Sawanwa peoples. The anglicized versions of their names are the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee tribes, on whose ancestral homelands Bloomington, Indiana was built. We encourage everyone to engage with contemporary Native communities, to learn the histories of this land, to consider who does and does not have access to its resources, and to examine one's place, abilities, and obligations within a process of reparative work that is necessary to promote a more equitable and socially just society. Do you want to say anything about some of the earliest cases, things to do with standing in, in court or personhood for non-human entities? Yeah, so as, as folks and communities have been pushing back on this concept of being controlled, basically, by this higher system of law that replaces their values with the values of the industry leaders who are seeking to do X, Y, and Z in their community, there, there came a similar recognition that, that not only are we controlled as human beings to protect our own rights, so if we take steps to protect our own health, safety, and welfare and other rights, like to sustainable agriculture and other things that we feel that we have, but that also that nature itself under this system of law that we have is, is basically treated as property, that you can buy and sell ecosystems. We, we don't think about it that way a lot of times. We think about you know a five-acre piece of land that we own, but that five-acre piece of land has ecosystems on it that don't just begin and end at those uh, parcel uh, edges either. And so nature has been treated as property under this Western system of law that we have for, for thousands of years. It's the bedrock of this system of law that people have rights, nature is property. And of course, we all remember that women used to be property and African-Americans used to be property in the 1800s uh, and still to some extent today with the remnants of those systems. But that this concept that nature is property means that the more nature you own, the more you can legally destroy. So, you know, what you learn in law school and folks know as well is that uh, property ownership is a bundle of sticks. And one of the sticks in that bundle is the right to destroy whatever you own. That's part of ownership. In addition to excluding others from using it, one of the, one of the sticks is to you can destroy the property that you have legally. And so in the U.S., we've tried to build an environmental protection system based on this property ownership view of nature and ecosystems. And I think the most exciting work happening in the U.S. and in fact around the world right now is this rights of nature concept that nature itself, ecosystems, rivers, forests, mountains should actually have rights of their own. And it kind of bends our brains sometimes to think about nature having rights because we're used to you know, the, the U.S. Bill of Rights, which recognizes free speech rights and right to practice religion of our choice and other rights contained within that U.S. Constitution Bill of Rights. In addition, all of our states have a Bill of Rights. We sometimes forget that too, but those Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution Bill of Rights are all based on human rights, uh, that rights accrue to us as people, as persons, just by fact of being human. 
when we think about rights of nature, we're actually talking about transforming nature from being rightless as property under the system that we have now to being rights-bearing, almost a civil rights-type protections for nature. So what would it look like if a river had a right to flow? Would that mean that damming the river is illegal uh, because it violates the right of the river to flow? What does it mean for the, the right of a uh, forest to exist and flourish, kind of these constitutional standards? Does that mean that projects that would clear cut the forest or damage the ecosystem in other ways, would that make those activities illegal? And the answer is yes. It's basically a constraint on human activity by creating or recognizing rights for those natural systems or ecosystems. Just like with humans, if we have human rights, activities that happen that violate those rights, we have a legal solution to that, a remedy. Ideally, it doesn't always happen this way, of course, but when someone violates your rights, you can go into court uh, if you have the means uh, and sue to actually enforce those rights. What this rights of nature movement is talking about is basically that nature ecosystems would have certain rights. They're not the same rights as humans. Obviously, free speech doesn't apply or equal protection or due process. Those are human concepts or the right to vote. But concepts like the right to exist, kind of like a right to life for an ecosystem, a right to flourish, a right to thrive, uh, a right to restore itself in case there's a damage, uh, human-caused damage, a right to restoration. Uh, these, these types of remedies and types of rights that can be assigned or recognized on behalf of these ecosystems of nature. And the most exciting thing is that a lot of times we just talk about ideas but this idea has come to fruition. And the fruition that it's come to uh, has been back in 2006, the first community in the US passed a rights of nature law. It was a little place called Tamaqua Borough, just Northwest of Philadelphia. It makes me feel old most days, but I actually wrote that law back in 2006. It was the first rights of nature law to be adopted by a municipality in the world, uh, recognizing that waterways within that community had certain rights to exist and flourish and be restored, those types of constitutionally based rights. And then to our surprise, I think that the model kind of morphed from that little community in Pennsylvania to Ecuador. And in Ecuador, we were called down to help with the drafting of the new Ecuadorian constitution. And it was the first time that this concept of rights of nature was written into a national constitution, which was then ratified by the people of Ecuador, there have now been a bunch of cases litigated, uh, the most famous one, I think, coming down only a couple months ago, which protected a, a forest preserve within Ecuador from mining permits uh, that had been issued that would violate the rights of that forest preserve to exist and thrive and the other standards that are within, within the Ecuadorian constitutional law. In addition to Ecuador, you have Bolivia that passed the rights of Mother Earth law. Uh, Panama recently signed a national law just a couple of weeks ago, uh, recognizing rights of nature in the country. It, it's going to come into effect after a year. That's how national legislation exists in Panama. There are courts in India, courts in Colombia, uh, and uh, local laws being passed in places like Brazil, uh, as well as other countries. And in the U.S. today, uh, there are three dozen communities, both tribal governments as well as municipal governments across the United States that have passed these rights of nature laws. I think it's the new kind of uh, trend. It's the emerging new environmental law paradigm that's eventually going to supplant or augment the existing environmental 
kind of regulatory patchwork that we have now that deals with nature as property. You're listening to part two of WFHB correspondent Zyro Rose's conversation with educator, author, and rights of nature attorney Thomas Lindsay on the WFHB local news. This interview covers the rights of nature doctrine, which argues that an ecosystem is entitled to personhood status and as such has the right to defend itself in a court of law. We now turn back to the conversation. And I think where people in general have any familiarity with the ideas to do with corporate personhood, was was that kind of in the works before the Citizens United, which I think was a couple of years after what you were accomplishing? Was your type of personhood for entities of nature, did that precede or was that in parallel to corporate personhood? Yeah, so whereas our brains kind of explode when we talk about rights for nature, we don't seem to have any problems with things like rights for corporations. <laughs> and in fact, in the U.S. system, we actually have rights for ships. So, you know, in, in, in maritime law or admiralty law, ships regularly sue each other. But that, that doesn't blow our brains usually either. Uh, so it's interesting how we've come to see, you know, culturally these different systems operating and who we assign rights to and who we don't. Corporate personhood goes all the way back, at least in the U.S., officially back to the early 1800s. And so in the early 1800s, corporations began acquiring certain rights that people had within the U.S. Constitution. Uh, And so people are most familiar with free speech rights. uh, And corporations were given free speech rights in a series of decisions in the 1900s. But suffice it to say, all the rights that we think we have within the U.S. Constitutional Bill of Rights, most of those rights have been given by the courts, specifically the U.S. Supreme Court, to corporate entities to use to strike down laws that we or our communities pass that interfere with those corporate rights. And a lot of times people have problems getting their heads around this because they say, well, corporate person, that's all well and good, but it doesn't really affect me. Well, it does. If your community passes a law that bans factory farms, for example, the agribusiness corporation can come in and sue your municipality, your government, contending that you violated the corporation's rights, specifically that you've taken property from them uh, without paying them for it, which is part of the takings uh, provisions within the U.S. Constitution that people have the right against governments taking their property. A lot of people don't understand that when a permit issues from the state to put in a factory farm, for example, that permit is property. It can be sold, it can be bought. The permit itself is property, the paper itself. And so when a community bans a factory farm, you're actually taking the value of that paper from the corporation. And so the corporation can sue the municipality, which happens often. Generally, the city or town reading the writing on the wall generally caves and says, well, we don't want to be held liable for. Uh, whatever our cost was to stop the corporation from coming in here. It's all the stuff that happens underneath the surface. You rarely see it because a lot of times these confrontations end before they even start because the elected officials back down from confronting the company. But this is how the U.S. is hardwired. This is how the system works or doesn't work, but it works well for certain entities. It doesn't work very well for others. 
So this concept of corporate rights, corporations having certain rights, goes way back in England, all the way back to the church corporations, you know, way back in the 1600s, 1700s, uh, where churches had certain rights under the law, and uh, most specifically could continue in perpetuity. That's, that's one of the rights, uh, that a church would have certain rights, church corporation would have certain rights into perpetuity. In many ways, when our founders, you know, the founding fathers, uh, decided to construct the U.S. Constitution, they draw, drew a lot on English precedent. And part of that precedent was about corporate rights. And so, you know, it's a lot of people argue that it's a mistake that corporations have rights somehow in our system. It's not a mistake. It's actually hardwired into the system. The rights of nature stuff, it's, it's easier to talk with folks about rights for ecosystems because you have this historical memory of corporations having rights. And sometimes it's easier for people to wrap their heads around it when they say, well, nature can't have rights. It's, it's not a human, it's not a person. Well, welcome to the club, right? Ships have rights, corporations have rights. We don't seem as a system to have a problem giving rights to certain things that we value. Uh, and corporations as economic actors are something the system values highly. So it protects prophylactically with that system of rights that we have within the Bill of Rights. So it's about having a different value system that accords rights to nature and ecosystems rather than corporations. But corporate rights preceded by a long way, these property rights kind of uh, tied up in the US Constitution and given to corporations long before this concept of nature having rights came around, at least to the Western world. And in the Western world, this rights of nature concept basically began back in the 1970s with a U.S. Supreme Court case that, uh, that touched the concept of nature having rights, the ability to go into court to defend itself. Indigenous communities, of course, have understood nature as not being property for thousands of years. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times the Western or white lawyers point to this Supreme Court decision in 1972, just to put an exact year on it in which dissenting opinion was filed by one of the Supreme Court justices, Justice Douglas, who wrote about nature having rights. And that was the first time we saw it in Western jurisprudence. But tribes and indigenous communities have long understood nature as being something other than property or something other than a dead thing. They've treated nature as, as being an, an, an animated uh, process or system. So the Anishinaabe in Minnesota, they talk about the flying people and the swimming people and the singing people, you know, the birds and the fish, they talk about it as part of a family. In the Yurok tribe in Northern California talks about the Klamath River as being a relative. So it, it's much different to talk in terms of that versus Western civilization concept of nature, which I think is, is, is uh, best put by Sir Francis Bacon, who once said that the job of Western civilization was to torture nature on a rack to extract your secrets. So on one side, you got the swimming people, the singing people, uh, and treating nature as a relative, not as a piece of property, but as something else, something connected to. And on the other side, in Western civilization, you see Western civilization uh, putting nature on a medieval torture device to actually extract her secrets so that we can use it to expand human civilization. That's basically the disjunction here. And of course, our current legal system is based on that Western version of law, not on that indigenous system of law.
That was WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaking with educator, author, and rights of nature attorney Thomas Lindsay. Stay tuned for part three, which will air at a later date on the WFHB local news. Up next, more phony phoners on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. In today's segment, host and producer Richard Fish describes how he keeps robocallers at bay and offers a warning about a tech scam that's hit locally. We turn to Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Pretty much every day, I get at least one phone call from a caller ID I don't recognize. Quite often, the call appears to come from a town in Indiana, usually a small town where I don't know anyone. But no matter what the caller ID says, if I don't recognize it, I don't answer. Usually, the caller hangs up even before my answering message finishes. Someone suggested I show you why this probably happens, so I will. If you call my phone, you will hear this. Hello, you have reached... Please leave a message. If you don't, or if you're selling something, or if you are a machine, this call will be ignored. Now the caller will hear my real phone number, but obviously I didn't want to broadcast that on the radio. Still, that outgoing message seems to be quite effective. Once in a while, a robocall will go ahead and dump its message into my answering system. Sometimes the robot starts talking well before my phone starts recording, and I only get part of the message. Regardless, I don't accept calls from machines, and I delete the message. If the same number calls twice, I block that number. Phony phone calls are still a very common way for scammers to get their hooks into you. A woman right here in Bloomington recently lost $1,400 to a tech support scam. In her case, she was working online when her computer screen suddenly went dark and a pop-up message told her to call a number. But the scam is also worked by phone. You get a recorded message saying the same thing this woman saw on the pop-up. This is such-and-such such customer support. We have detected a serious problem with your computer. Please call this number, and we will help you fix it. <laughs> if you fall for this, you're likely to get a person with a foreign accent. The bulk of these swindles have been coming from the Indian subcontinent, so they may sound like they're from India or Pakistan. The caller will ask you to do one of two things, or perhaps both. They often ask you to install a program on your computer, a program like AnyDesk. AnyDesk is an app that lets others see what's on your screen and share access to your files, and there are others like it. SolarWinds Remote Everywhere, TeamViewer, Parallels Access, Splashtop, and many more. 
It should be obvious how dangerous this can be. Letting someone you don't know have access to all your files, including your contacts, so they can work the same scam on your friends. And, of course, you'll probably be asked to send money using a gift card or by Venmo or PayPal. It'll be a method where the money cannot be retrieved once it's sent. Don't fall for this. And now that you've gotten my message, go right ahead and ignore theirs. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Stay tuned for Hereabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB.